The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. We'll have some special recommendations handpicked by me at the end of the show. Hello. Here we are, people. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. We have a great episode today. Shauna Yang Ryan is here. She's a novelist who lives in Hawaii, and she's written a couple of excellent, excellent novels. She goes deep in her books. She's one of those authors who digs in, who really learns her history so she can write books that show the impact of a changing world on generations of families. She's going to be talking about her life as a reader, including her love for James Baldwin and Wallace Stegner and a few others. Those are not obvious choices for her, but they become obvious when you look a little beneath the surface, just a little... A little beneath, you can start seeing some patterns, drawing some connections. This was a fun one. I really enjoyed talking to Shauna. So smart, thoughtful, open to the interview. We had a few surprise bonus questions for Shauna. And hey, I don't, I don't think authors are predisposed to like surprise bonus questions. It goes against their nature. They like to have time to think, to revise but she was up for it. She might be the only person who has approached the surprise bonus question this way. I gave her a choice between A and B, and she took half of A and half of B. <laughs> How's that for an answer? The writer's way of solving the problem? Chekhov would have approved. You'll hear that interview in a few minutes. But first, it's almost election day here in the U.S. We're not going to talk politics here, although I will tell you that you should get out there and vote if you're a, an American. Do your part. I won't tell you who I'm voting for, of course. We like to stay officially neutral here at the History of Literature podcast. I'll just say I'm optimistic about her chances. I'm not going to say anything else that might reveal my choice. Hey, one more thing about voting. I spent some time in Italy this summer, and I was with an old friend of mine who I knew was an avid follower of politics. And I knew this because I remember once, years ago, he drove me home from a party in the wee hours of the morning, and we stopped along the way. And I asked, I said, what are we doing? Kind of like to go home. And he said, oh, we're getting the newspapers. We were parked outside the walls of Bologna at one of the portas. And the sun wasn't even up yet. I suppose it must have been about 4 a.m. And he was waiting for the newspaper stand to open. So he could run out, get out of the car, come back with an armful of newspapers, follow the politics. That is a fan of politics. And it's a world that doesn't exist anymore, unless you're one of those throwbacks who refuse to acknowledge the internet or the fact that the earth moves around the sun. So. I was with this friend this summer, this Italian friend, and I knew he'd ask me about the phenomenon of Donald Trump. And I didn't want to just talk about Trump and say all the things that everyone already knows and says. It's not my area of expertise. I wanted to learn something from the conversation. Think about that the next time you're talking about politics or about issues. Don't say things you know that you've heard. Think, I want to learn something in this conversation. Makes the conversation so much more interesting. So I said, well, it kind of reminds me of Berlusconi, right? Is that a parallel? Is that a good parallel? There's a media background, uh, an improbable candidate running as an outsider. He's more telegenic than many other politicians. Maybe has more, more experience being in front of a camera than he does with any of the actual issues. Maybe has some authoritarian impulses, some narcissism. Then there's this, this momentum, 
kind of runs away. Is that how you see it? And my friend peered at me over his glasses and he said, yes, but Italy is not America. That was his comment. Italy is not America. I listened and I learned. Learned so much about how he saw the world, his own country and mine. Empathy, people. Empathy. How many times have we talked about that here? What literature is all about. Empathy. Let's think about that this election season and citizenship. Get out there and vote. And if you're listening to this after election day, get ready for the next vote. (laughs) It'll be here before you know it. Be a steward of democracy. It's not a given that we have this. Remember our episode on the poetry of empire? Rome had a republic for a long time. They were very proud of it. It was very mature, established, and then it all went away. These democratic institutions that we have, elections, the courts, the rule of law, those are not the norm. They are the exception, historically speaking. Take care of them. But here I go, saying things you already know. Preaching to the choir, I'm guessing. Preaching, you know, (laughs) why does the choir show up if they don't want to hear a little preaching once in a while? Ever think about that? Why Why would you join a choir? Just to hear yourself sing? How vain do you need to be not to want to hear a few minutes of preaching? What what does the choir do during the preaching? Just sit there, rolling their eyes, saying, well, we already know all this. Shut up and let us sing. No, of course not. People always say, stop. Oh, they put up their hand. Stop. You're preaching to the choir. What they mean is, I guess that the choir is already on board. The choir doesn't need to be convinced. But why does that mean stop? We shouldn't stop. That's not not how choirs work. Choirs don't jump up and say, stop. Stop, preacher. Stop. We know this already. How about this? The next time someone says that to you, the next time someone holds up their hand and says, ah, stop. You're preaching to the choir. You should do what I always do. Just say, oh, I'm preaching to the choir. Is that right? Well, okay then. Why don't I keep talking for 20 minutes without interruptions? And then you can just sing what I say while I relax. Dabbing my forehead with my handkerchief because I'm sweaty from my outstanding performance smiling at the thousands in the congregation who love me and whose lives I have just changed with my words and who are, as we speak, listening to you sing, but thinking about me and my words and my thoughts, and they're filling up the offering plates with their hard-earned cash. Hmm. Yeah. That's the response. Try that next time. It never fails to make an impression. One last thing before we begin. I forgot one of my favorite Dorothy Parker sayings last time. So I'm going to add a sixth pick for myself to cement my victory over Mike Palindrome in the Dorothy Parker draft. You can't take it with you, she said. And if you could, it would probably melt. Ah, Dorothy. (laughs) You were the best. But hey. You're not here for politics and religion. You're here for literature, which is often about politics and religion. Never mind. You're here for Shawnee Yang Ryan talking about some books that she loved and how she came to write her novel, Green Island. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Joining me now is Shauna Yang Ryan, the author of Water Ghosts, a novel about three Chinese women who mysteriously appear out of the mists along the Sacramento River and whose arrival set off a chain of consequences in the local community. And she also wrote the novel Green Island, a story of love, betrayal, and family set against the background of a changing Taiwan in the 20th century. Since its publication earlier this year, Green Island has been receiving accolades and rave reviews. When she's not writing, she teaches creative writing at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Shauna Yang Ryan, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you. Okay, so I asked you to choose some books that you've loved at some point in your life, and you sent me a great list, and I can't wait to to talk about your choices, but let's start by talking about your own writing and your novel, Green Island. What is Green Island about? Well, it's narrated by a woman whose father is arrested during um, this uprising in 1947, mm-hmm. and he goes to prison for 10 years on Green Island, and then returns, and then it follows the repercussions um, that his imprisonment and martial law has had on her family. Okay, so the the father, is a, he's a native of Taiwan? Yeah, so he's the, Taiwanese, and okay. then the uprising was against the um, Chinese nationalists, the KMT. Right. And, you know, I think we've kind of forgotten a lot of the history. I I was in Taiwan in the early 90s, and it was still pretty prominent. Like, I felt like there was a whole generation of people who had had really understood the history of Taiwan and how it was, the government there was, was formed by the people who had left uh, mainland China. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a big political issue of do we recognize Taiwan? Do we recognize that as China? Do we recognize Mao's China as, as China? And I think that was so important in the 70s and, and beyond. And then we're getting kind of far away from that now. And I think a lot of people have, in America, at least, have kind of forgotten just what a turbulent 20th century that Taiwan has had. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it started when Nixon went to China, and then it was further cemented when Carter resumed relations, you know, with China and cut off relations with Taiwan. It's been like this slow drift, and Taiwan has kind of slowly disappeared from, I think, America's consciousness. Yeah. And Taiwan, the people there, it's interesting that you had someone involved in the uprising as a protagonist. Taiwan has basically been occupied all through the 20th century, right? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's one way to put it. Definitely, you know, there was Japanese colonialism colonialism for 50 years, and then the Chinese came in. I think there's some back and forth about whether people consider that an occupation. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little tricky, the wording, but it's it was definitely a difficult period. And there were also, you know, the KMT was in power, the Chinese nationalists were in power, but there were the people who fled the civil war in China who came in 1949, 2 million of them. And they were also subject to the KMT oppression in the, in similar ways to the Taiwanese. So even though they were kind of this, um, invasive force, they were also victims of the same political oppression. Right. Now, what drew you to this topic? Was it, were you interested in it from a historical perspective first, or was it something that you explored as you, as you develop the novel? Um, I moved to Taiwan after I graduated from college um, because my mom was born in Taiwan and mm. grew up in there, grew up there. And I didn't know much about it. And so I had um, started taking Mandarin in college. And then I decided I was going to go move to Taiwan 
and get to know my family there. Um, and so my mother's family came in 49 and, you know, she would talk about Chinese versus Taiwanese. I didn't really understand the difference between the two groups. And so I think um, going to Taiwan, researching this book, um, helped me understand the historical context for those divisions. Mm-hmm. And that's when I discovered this incident, this massacre, this uprising that led to a massacre, the 228 a massacre uh, that happened in 1947. So I, a museum had just recently been opened in Taipei commemorating it, and I discovered this history, and I was just fascinated by this concept that it had been kept as a national secret for 40 years, that people were not allowed to talk about it, even though tens of thousands of people had died. Right. So this, the book began there. And then, yeah, I just uncovered more and understood more of the nuances of, of politics in Taiwan. Right. And what's interesting, too, I will say is that uh, there was a recent poll on, you know, how people how Taiwanese identi- identify is always this big question. And, mm-hmm. and now um, even the people of Chinese descent, I guess you could say, many of them identify as Taiwanese, like the young people today. I think it's a majority, like 75% or something, people in Taiwan identify as Taiwanese. Really? So even people whose ancestors came over from mainland China, but now they view their their kids and their grandchildren view themselves as Taiwanese. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's become sort of like this national identity. You know, when I was there, I guess it was 1994, 1993 and 94, I had this job where I was teaching English. And so a lot of people would open up to me in kind of an interesting way, just because we were looking for things to talk about. And some of the people that I met who were identified themselves as native Taiwanese, they were proud, but very quiet and very shy about it. And I think it was this sort of legacy of not being able to talk about it and, and uh, you know, a country going for so long without being able to, literally, they weren't allowed to speak of it in school. Right. Yeah. And being indoctrinated with this educational system that told them, no, you're Chinese, because the whole Republic of China project depended on this idea that Taiwan was representing the true China. So all those people there had to be Chinese. Yeah. So they had their uh, identity suppressed for a long time. So when you were doing the research for your novel, were you finding books that were helpful or did you interview people or how did you get your arms around the subject? It started with George Kerr's Formosa Betrayed, which is an account, eyewitness account of the, the massacre period because he was a vice consul there. And um, and then I moved on to interviews yeah, just gathering stories from people. And when I um, then I moved back to the United States and I talked to a lot of Taiwanese Americans mm-hmm. about their memories in Taiwan and also their immigration experiences to the U.S. Right. Okay, so let's talk about how you got started in the world of fiction. And I'm okay. interested in you, uh, what age did you start reading seriously or were you always someone with your, your nose in a, in a book and loving the fictional worlds of different novels? I always loved reading. I think of fourth grade maybe as a a time when I became more serious about it and when I wanted to, that's when I decided I wanted to write. Right. That's pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, I I luckily (laughs) had a teacher who assigned us to write stories and I loved it and I tried to write a novel that year. Did you already make the connection that you needed to read, you know, particular things in order to help you become a better writer? Oh, no. I, I just read because I loved it. You just read whatever whatever yeah. came your way. Yeah. And then as you got older, was there a time where you sought out particular books or, or is there anything now that you read for inspiration as a writer? Mm. I think I've, now that you asked this question, I think that I've kind of always read in the same way, which is I would be interested in just a subject and read everything I could find about it and be obsessed with it for a few months and then move on to the next thing I was obsessed with. Because I remember being obsessed with Henry VIII for a while <laughs> um, and the occult. Those are all those are uh, junior high elementary yeah. school obsessions. <laughs> Henry VIII and the occult. Yeah, well, not together, but okay. <laughs> I remember those coming close together for some reason. Maybe it was all right. the dead wives. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, so they, you seem like a very interesting uh, fourth through eighth grader, at least. Um, <laughs> were you uh, were you on your own doing this, or were you part of a group of friends? Or 
Oh my gosh, I was totally a nerd. Um, (laughs) No, I was, yeah, I tried to gather my friends um, into this endeavor. So I tried to start like this biography club where we could go during recess and read biographies in the library and then like do little write-ups of them. And um, the biographies had the signatures of the people they were written about inside the cover. And that was one of the requirements for your report is you had to trace the signature. Um, right. <laughs> that was a requirement yeah. that you put in place? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did your friends, uh, how did they respond to being inducted into this club? I think it, you know, it lasted a few recesses. <laughs> it went along with it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, it, it almost seems like, I'm sure we could probably talk for quite a while about your early reading and draw a lot of, <laughs> draw a lot of lines between the stuff you were interested in in then and the stuff you became interested in uh, as an adult and a professional writer. But why don't we jump to the books that you chose, Okay. which I think also have a lot of common themes and and interests. I was seeing a lot of patterns as I was uh, taking a look at these books. So the first one I wanted to talk about was uh, James Baldwin's Another Country. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many of our readers will be familiar with it. I think, oh, sorry, my listeners will be familiar with it. I think most people will be familiar with Baldwin, of course, and, and mm-hmm. his essays, if not his novels. But Another Country is a book uh, that was set in Greenwich Village in the late 1950s, and it portrayed a lot of themes that were taboo at the time of its release uh, in 1962, including bisexuality and interracial couples and extramarital affairs. And it involves a jazz drummer who has a relationship with a white woman and some abusive relationships and jealousy, artistic as well as sexual. And there's a suicide. I don't want to spoil things, but there's a suicide. And then there's an impact of the suicide on those who are left to understand the reasons for it. So how did this, how old were you when this book came your way? Or how did it come about that you started reading Another Country? My friend gave it to me for Christmas last year, so I had only just encountered it last year. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. So you're you're one of the people who are able to fall in love with a book even today. Yeah. And I just taught it to my class two weeks ago. Oh, So I loved it so much, I added it to my syllabus. So what is the course that you're teaching? Is it a creative writing course? It's a contemporary American lit course. Uh Uh-huh. And how did the students respond? They loved it, too. Um, and they felt the same way I did, which was so surprised that the work is so contemporary and stands mm-hmm. up so well, even though it was written in, you know, the early 60s. Right. And yeah, it's just it was just so forward thinking and, and still so relevant. I guess I guess there are a couple of ways to look at that. One is that Baldwin was was a real uh, visionary and that he was way ahead of its time, but also that these are themes that we haven't really come to grips with or that they're they're still as taboo as they may have been, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, I think both of those things and that people at that time weren't writing about these things, but they definitely existed, of course. Right. You know, one of the things I admire about him so much is the way he's able to use anger and outrage uh, and he's, but he's able to to get it into his fiction in a way that's not uh, overly polemical, or it doesn't feel preachy or anything like that. Is that something that appealed to you and your students? It definitely felt relevant. Um, thinking about the kind of conversations we're having now um, about race mm-hmm. and sexuality in this country, and yeah, we had read Audre Lorde like right before it, so we were kind of thinking about ways of expressing anger and and how relationships are politicized or how politics enter relationships, I guess, and things like that. So I think, yeah, that's something he does very, very beautifully and powerfully. Um, We listened to a recording of him reading a critical scene and it was just stunning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, a critical scene in another country. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's a critical scene. Um, and also his placement of the suicide that you mentioned um, mm-hmm. surprised me in terms of constructing a story because it happens so early in the kind story. It comes you, early, right. Yes. And you think that, yeah, it's just an unexpected move. And I, I think that was the first thing that impressed me about the book. Right, right. And then it, it makes sense why that happens. Yeah, 
yeah, but before you read the rest of the book, when you first read that, you're like, what? <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, are you ready for the surprise bonus question? Okay. I think so. Okay. So, uh, thanks to a mysterious rip in the space-time continuum, James Baldwin is actually alive and well in 2016, and he's at the height of his writing powers. Where do you think he's living, and what do you think he's writing about? Mm. Well, I guess I'd have to imagine him living abroad, as mm. he did. Cause it mm -hmm. seems like he found um, a lot of power in being able to live overseas and look back at the United States. Right. And I think he's probably writing about, well, I guess he'd have to be writing about the election right now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. I know. And what do you think he would make of it? It's a little hard to predict. <laughs> if I had the brain of James Baldwin, yeah. I yeah. Think that's, that's the thing. I feel like he would give us a take on it that is, is maybe not one that you would easily predict. Right. Yeah, exactly. He was brilliant. Uh, I, kind of wish we had him uh, just for this election, if for no other reason. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's take a look at your next book. This selection is one that has a very different feel to it, Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose, which is a classic novel from 1971. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction that year. And it, for people who haven't read it, it tells the story of a historian in a wheelchair who has lost connection with his son and other close relatives and decides to write about his frontier-era grandparents. And Stegner sort of famously based the novel on some letters of Mary Hyluck Foote. And mm -hmm. I guess he had permission to do so, but it, it became kind of controversial about how much he actually borrowed from uh, the letters that he was using often very close uh, in language and everything. It was really a remarkable set of letters, I think, that he was able to, to draw from. But in any case, in the novel, we really get uh, two periods described. One is the late 1960s, where Walt Stegner was living through as, as the historian in the novel deals with some of the turbulence of that decade and the way that it enters his own life. And then, of course, the period of the uh, narrator's grandparents or the historian's grandparents where they they are making their way in a California, pioneering California in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. So this is a book, I think people, a lot of people, I don't want to describe it as a religious experience, but it's certainly a book that people read and then urge other people to read. And, and it really seems to be life-changing or transformative for some people. Was that your experience as well? That it was transformative? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I do, and I urge other people to read it. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> it I tell people it's a must-read, yeah. It, it must be one of the most purchased books for other people, that people are buying it for other, you know, that they, <laughs> they want to go out and buy it and give it to someone else. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that those people read it, too. It's, right. Um, so what yeah. appealed to you about the novel? Uh, a number of things. I mean, one of, I was intrigued by the controversy that you mentioned, that um, there were some accusations of almost an almost plagiarism of the original letters. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the letters are woven so seamlessly into the voice of the grandmother, mm -hmm. of the pioneer grandmother, that it's, it was amazing to me to find out that the, he had not Stegner had not written the letters himself. At the same time, I was intrigued too because he quotes Gary Snyder later in the book, but it's not an actual quote. So he's like uh, oh. using things, yeah. yeah. So he's making up quotes for Gary Snyder, <laughs> then actually using um, letters and then as if they were fiction. So there's like some weirdness going on there that I found kind of intriguing and kind yeah. of fascinated by the figure of Stegner in that way. But then also I grew up in California and I was not interested in the quote unquote West at all. Mm -hmm. It just seemed really exotic and very far from my life. And, you know, um, as a person of color, it just seemed just a really different history to me. Um, but he humanizes it and, and, and because it's focalized through a female, um, it just made it a lot more accessible and, I mean, it's kind of a feminist view of the West, too. Mm -hmm. And his ability to switch between the voices. And then about uh, four-fifths of the way through the book, 
everything you thought the book was about suddenly changes because of one incident. And then, or at least for me, and then I realized, oh, this book is not what I thought it was about at all. It's about this totally other thing. Mm. And that, like, I mean, gives me chills right now just to talk about it. Right. Um, I thought it was really magical. Right. And it, that's this is the, the second book in a row that had that kind of quality to it. Is that something that you consciously try to put into your own novels to give readers that kind of effect? I think it's something that I definitely think about. Yeah. And that I do try for, but I don't think I've successfully executed it yet. Oh. <laughs> so I'll keep, I'll keep striving. It's interesting to me that you, that you didn't have the West, the American West as part of your, your, your understanding of California when you're growing up. And it, it almost seems to me like that would be the natural position for most people. California, you know, I, I certainly don't associate California as much with the West as, you know, other Western states. It seems mm -hmm. like California has its own identity that's a little bit cleansed from the sort of 19th century cowboys and, and pioneer wagons. Yeah, it's just kind of a different idea of the West. And, and maybe that was my issue with it. And yeah, I always thought of maybe a place like Texas as the West. Right, right. But, yeah. the, but Stegner captured something. I mean, he became known as, I guess, the great chronicler of California or or the American West. What do you think he was tapping into? Was it a, a spirit or just the history that he was so good at writing about? Or what did he what did he get about that time period that that feels new and exciting? Mm -hmm. Well, it departs from other Westerns. Um, he doesn't really have like cowboys and the shootouts and things like that. It's like families um, right. going through going through hardships in in against the kind of the landscape. Um, I read um, Big Rock Candy Mountain, too, and it's, it's sort of similar. It's sort of like the it's like maybe the draft of Angle of Repose in a way, um, the family against this harsh landscape and trying to figure out what are they doing there? How are they going to make the environment? How can they work with the, the environment of the West? Right. That's interesting. It makes me, as you were describing that, it made me feel like the the cowboy stories are a little more, maybe moralistic and simplistic. And there's, you know, good guys and bad guys and, and shootouts and that kind of thing. But the Stegner seems a little more grown up than that and a little more mature in looking at families and the way that they endure the elements and, and wrestle with surviving in a landscape. Yeah. And underneath his stories, I mean, they're about love basically. And that's, I think something that's missing like a real kind of sophisticated, complicated adult love and not like, you know, romance. Right. The uh, woman tied to the train tracks and right. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> okay. Surprise bonus question. Okay. An eccentric producer has hired you to oversee an adaptation of The Angle of Repose. He And I'll, I'll tell you that this was inspired by my discovery that The Angle of Repose was made into an opera at one point. Oh. So the producer gives you a few choices. You can adapt it for the stage, for a two-hour movie, or a ten-part television series. As you're considering this, he says, by the way... We have room in the budget for some big names. So go out and get a director or some actors. Get whoever you want to be in this thing. So what okay. format do you pick and who do you line up to be part of the project? Mm, okay. Well, it has to be a 10-part television series because mm -hmm. the book is so long and goes to so many places. So okay. each part could be a different location. That's good. We'll get HBO or Netflix or there's plenty of avenues now for a 10-part series. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that sounds perfect. <laughs> Director, actors. Mm, I kind of see Brad Pitt uh -huh. as Oliver, um, the husband, the grandfather of of the the narrator. Mm, yeah, and because maybe because I love her take on historical films, like in Marie Antoinette, I would say Sofia Coppola Ooh. as director. Do yeah. something a little different with it. I think she's from California, so maybe she could capture some of that and add some dreaminess to it. Yeah, plus it would be um, 
it it would fit in with her themes, but it would be very different for her. I think she I think she likes taking on projects where she gets to do something different or she gets to grow in a certain way. And this would I don't think she's she really has any films that would be anything like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, yeah, you're right. California. That's her. She certainly has ties there. So this might be the first time we've ever we ever end up green lighting a uh, <laughs> a project. We, we, <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll get some calls for more. <laughs> that would be awesome. I look forward to that. You know, I've been really I've been watching Westworld, and so I think this would be a nice um, series to go along with HBO's right. lineup. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, let's look at the next one, which is Vietnam America. I think that's how it, I should pronounce it mm-hmm. by G.B. Tran, which is uh, was published in 2011. And it's a graphic novel or a graphic memoir. And it's won all kinds of prizes. And people really love this book. Uh, and I found a quote from the author that I thought is, is a good description of what uh, G.B. Tran was setting out to do. Vietnam America is what happened when I realized to better understand myself, I needed to first better understand my parents. It's the 50-year journey of my family's trauma, tragedy, and triumph through Vietnam's wars and reinvention in its aftermath as refugees in the United States. It's the unraveling of my family's truth and what's uncovered when I drew my past to write my future. What did you love about this book? Why is this one on the list? I love that it's a graphic novel, mm-hmm. um, and I I taught a course on Asian American graphic novels in the spring, and I just really appreciate the way a graphic novel can get at things that are beyond language mm-hmm. through the visual, and this book does it really well. Um, he uses a lot of visual cues, changing the font uh, for different people's stories, changing sort of the color filter that he uses to tell different people's stories. Um, so all these things are coming are sort of coming at you in almost a subconscious way as the story is also making its impact. Right. Are you an artist yourself or is it uh, something you admire? It's just something I admire. Yeah. 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 And, it, you know, I'm always sort of envious when I see people who are able to do something like that or, or you know, a film director when they're able to to put a, a score to they're able to get so much emotion through both language and the visual art. Right. Right. And some of his, like his most power, one of his most powerful pages is it's like almost all black mm. and there's like a kind of a leaf floating across. Um, and then he includes some family photographs too. And um, I think that was a page that just made me cry. Um, so he's just really using the visual in very powerful ways. Now, did you find that your students were responsive to graphic novels in a way that they might not have been able to engage with more conventional novels? Definitely. And they had more practice reading them than right, right. I do. Yes. They're yeah. very into manga. And so they came into it with, with that kind of um, literacy. Oh, it's so interesting. So was the class, would you say it was a success? Yeah, yeah, it was great. And then we also looked at um, images in popular culture of um, Asian Americans and the Oscar so white controversy had taken place at the same time with Chris Rock bringing in the two mm. Asian American kids to play the accountants. And so we got to talk about all these things and bring them together. So it was really great. Right, yeah. right. So and I, I see the the parallel here with the angle of repose and the way that people look at the lives of one's grandparents. And we've talked about this in connection with your own writing too, where you, I wouldn't say it's sprawling so much as spanning almost where it spans generations and tries to find the connective tissue between one's grandparents and parents and one's own life. Is that something, were you inspired by that when you read that or did you just enjoy reading it or and I definitely have a soft spot for family histories, I think, mm-hmm. you know, as you as you know, and I'm really interested in this idea. And I think Angle of Repose gets at this really well, the ways in which we're sort of convergences of our family histories that are like converging in us and thinking about how those histories make us who we are. So, yeah, this is a book that, like you said, does that like Angle of Repose. And I think that that really um touched me. You talked about your own, that your book was, was drawing on your own family. Do you think that you could 
write it about any period of history that would have families and and be immersed in it or or do you think it it had to have that personal connection for you in order to be able to really dig in and spend the amount of time that you would need to spend to write a novel um you mean any period uh and still set in taiwan or set in a different place but about family just a like let's say a historical period that you didn't have a family connection to but was a period that maybe interested you, maybe Henry VIII or something. <laughs> right. I think so, as long as I could build characters that had strong relationships between each other. Um, I'm kind of starting to research a project now that um, is also historical for at the turn of the 20th century. It's like late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel particularly connected to that period. And I don't know much about my family history in that period. And it's not connected to my family at all, but I like unraveling. I like figuring out how people lived and what they did and how they were like, how they were like we are today and which, in which ways society has changed. So, right. Right. So, oh, so as you're writing about the historical period, you, you give it that angle of, you know, that it's all being reflected through the way we view things today and it will shed some light on, our current thinking as well. Right. And maybe that's what I love so much about another country is because we have these assumptions about what life was like in the early sixties. And then you Mm. read that book and you're like, wow, people were just actually dealing with all the same things we deal with today. That's a great point. And it, you know, you wouldn't think it would be so unusual, but the, I don't know what the right word is to describe it. I guess the, the restrictions of conventionality, you know, people, People were living these lives, but they, when they sat down to write a novel, they put on a different set of sensibilities or something because that's what people wrote novels about. Right. Exactly. And um, Baldwin was brave enough to give us kind of a, a glimpse of what was really happening. A peek underneath the tent or something. Right. Okay. Are you ready for the surprise bonus question? Okay. This is the GB Tran one. Okay. You are walking along a river one day, and a woman appears out of the mists. She calls herself your new muse, which you do not really understand. She pulls two boxes out from under her shawl and says, I will give you one of these boxes to help you with your next novel. The first one is full of secret letters of Marie Antoinette. There's information here that nobody has ever heard. It will change how people view the French Revolution. The second box is full of letters written by your great aunt someone you've never heard about before today. Although she's not a world historical figure, she's a good writer, and the letters tell a vivid story about what her life was like. Which box do you choose? Mm, This is a really hard question. I mean, if I'm going to change how people view the French Revolution, (laughs) like that's pretty big. (laughs) That would be Uh, fascinating, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And but there's also the like filial piety um side of me that says, "Oh, you have to uphold your family stories." Right, right. I don't know if I could choose. Could I just take half of the letters from each box? <laughs> yeah, why not? You could uh you can bargain with your your new muse. If she's going to be a muse, she needs to step up a little bit. Make sure that you have what you need creatively. Yeah, yeah. You know, I oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say I started this surprise bonus question with the idea of um, if you could travel into the future uh, and and spend a day in the future, but you had to choose between traveling ten years in the future, uh, fifty years in the future, a hundred years in the future, or a thousand years in the future. And the idea behind that question is kind of like how much do you want to know about your future family members or or your current family members and how they're doing? And how much do you want to see like big changes in society and, and understand something about where we're headed based on, you know, if you could see a thousand years in the future and you'd see what all the developments are, but you wouldn't necessarily recognize people that you're related to. Mm, right. But I thought this one would be a little bit better given your interests in in history and spanning generations yeah yeah i mean they're both great questions and my first impulse is i would go a thousand years in the future because i want to know as much as possible so i guess too i would probably take 
Marie Antoinette's letters. Right. So let's move on to the final pick uh, for books, Lois Duncan's Locked in Time. And this one is a young adult novel from 1985. And is this one that you read uh, when you were a young adult, or is it something you came across recently? I think I read it in 1985. Ah, so this one is about a 17-year-old whose uh, father remarries, and her mother has has not been gone for that long. And and then she discovers there's something new and odd and and sin- not new, something odd and sinister about. The new wife, whose name, I guess, is Lizette. Mm -hmm. And then she discovers her new mother's uh, old diaries in the shed. And some of them date back to the 19th century. Then it zooms forward to the present, and she and her father are in danger. It sounds very exciting and also very kind of mind-expanding. Is that the impact that it had on you when you read it? It was creepy, and I loved the thrill. It um, it takes place in the South, and her dad lives with his wife in this sort of like this old plantation home with the Spanish moss dripping down. Mm. And I don't know how much of a spoiler I can give. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, so her stepmother has not aged. Ah, right. She's made some sort of packed, you know, done some sort of spell and so that she's locked in time, as the title says. Right. Um, uh, yeah, so that was just fascinating to me. And then there, the woman, who the stepmother other, also has two children who are also locked in time. So I think I was really intrigued with her 13-year-old daughter who's actually like, I don't know, 80 years old or 100 years old, but she's in the body of a 13-year-old, so she can never experience adulthood the way she wants to. And she really wants to date, but she's always being held back from that because she's 13. That was really intriguing to me, too. And just like the atmosphere, the gothic atmosphere. Um, I read almost all of Lois Duncan's books back then, and um, they're all just really eerie. Yeah. When I hear it described, I think that it's it's such a, a creepy idea that young adults shouldn't be allowed anywhere near it because it's it's just too frightening and disturbing. But then I realize, you know, of course, that's exactly the kind of thing that they love, not just because it's scary, but because it's got such interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I was definitely intrigued. Yeah. Um, and I reread it actually recently, a few months ago. Um, and it's interesting because they updated it. Now the main character has a cell phone. Oh, uh, which changes things a little bit. I mean, huh. her cell phone is never working when it needs to, so there's still that, that frustration. <laughs> right. I guess they'd have to do that, or the plot, they could totally change the plot. Yeah. Right. So, I remember, did you ever read the book, I think it was called Tuck Everlasting, where oh. it was it was about a family that couldn't die? I never read it, yeah. I think they drink from a river or something, and it turns out to have been the Fountain of Youth, and... There's this really vivid scene in my memory that just shocked me when I was a kid, which was the father says, I have to know for sure. And he takes out a gun and shoots himself because he just he can't live anymore. It's when they first suspect that maybe something has happened to them and and they're not able to be hurt or or to die. And it you know, it's just a little line in a book, but it really stuck with me. And I'm. I don't know. Did you have feelings like that when you were reading uh, the the Lois Duncan book that, you know, what would it be like not to age and what would it be like to to meet someone who had been under this spell? Yeah. And I think, too, and when you use that example from Tuck Everlasting, there's we're probably at a moment. Uh, when we're young, we're not really thinking about mortality. And so it's like one of the earlier, earliest encounters with thinking about, oh, what is the finite life? Right. Um, because I think little kids feel like they are going to live forever. So it's kind of confronting in that way. Right. But then as young adults, they think, wait a second, I'm changing and I'm getting older. And what's that going to mean? I'm I'm just around the corner from being something, you know, from not being a child anymore. Yeah. And that's frightening. Ooh. Yeah, so I think it's really tapping into something deeply psychological. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when you chose these books, did you make the connection that this book also has uh, themes of of diaries and going back in time? And there's, you know, there's a parallel here, I think, with the Stegner and and with the other books that we've talked about as well. Is it or did you recognize that in yourself that you you tend to be drawn to these similar types of books? No, I didn't actually. 
<laughs> seems like it was very, very early on. The Biography Club and all of the things yeah. that you've talked about seems to be, uh, it was almost like you were born to write the books that you've been writing. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. It does make sense. I previewed the surprise bonus question for this one, which was the one of moving to the future. So let's move on to the the film that you chose, which um, I think we're going to see some similar themes here as well. It's the 2000 movie directed by Edward Yang, Yi Yi, mm-hmm. or a one and a two is sometimes the English title. And Edward Yang is is Taiwanese, I guess, and he was the film is about a, a family in Taipei. And it's seen through three perspectives, the middle-aged father, the young son, and the teenage daughter. And it's it's kind of a long movie, and it, it has weddings and funerals and and all kinds of human life going on in between. Uh, did you see this when it came out in 2000? Yeah, yes, I did. Actually, I saw it in a film class, and that was, yeah, in 2000. Right. Um, and I didn't love it right away, actually. I don't think I appreciated it right away um, until I saw it again a few years later. Okay. So what, what was your initial impression, that it was was long and difficult to penetrate? or? Yeah, and it's kind of slow moving. So mm-hmm. I, think I, didn't, I was like, wow, why is this the movie? Everybody went crazy about that movie in 2000. And, yeah. and my teacher said, my professor said it was his favorite film, and I didn't really understand it. Right. And it, I, yeah. I saw it has a 96% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, the critics, and it won all kinds of prizes, and critics just adored it. Yeah, I think it probably took a little bit of maturity for me to appreciate it. And it was an influence on Green Island in terms of how I decided to think about unraveling the narrative. Mm. Um, so it was a stylistic influence. Because the book is, I mean, the movie is not like this tight Freitag's triangle plot hmm. um, mm-hmm. that we're used to seeing. It's, it's shapeless, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it's, it just has this languid way that the story unfolds that just feels really like there's space. And I, I think the filmmaker has a lot of faith in the audience. And also you develop this trust in the filmmaker, and it's just so beautiful. Right. Yeah, the characters are just treated so lovingly. And there are spots of humor, too. Um, so it's not, it's serious, but it's not, it doesn't take itself totally seriously. I can't believe that I haven't seen it before. Yeah, you should definitely check it out. You should watch it as soon as we sign off. <laughs> <laughs> and is it also very visual and very um, kind of lushly directed? Well, it's it's set in Taipei and it's filmed in Taipei. So there's sort of a grayness to it um, uh-huh. as Taipei is, as you know. And so I don't know if I would say lush, but I think it really captures like life in Taipei in a way that's like this is like normal, normal, you know, middle class people living life in Taipei in the city. Okay, I will. As soon as we sign off. Okay. (laughs) Which leads me to the final surprise bonus question. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know why I always ask that. (laughs) I did have an interview where uh, the very nice person that I was talking to um, kind of said that he wasn't, and I didn't really know what to do. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't know that was an option. (laughs) That's why I don't tell you until the last one. Um, Okay. After a reading that you're giving, an audience member approaches you. She's about 30 years old. She tells you that she loves Water Ghosts and Green Island, and she would love for you to recommend another work that she will like. If she loves the work, she will donate a million dollars to the charity of your choice. If she doesn't like it, she will spend the rest of her life writing negative things about you on the internet. Oh dear. Yeah, that's awful. That's like my worst nightmare. (laughs) There's enough people out there doing it on their own, just on a (laughs) one-off basis, that if you had somebody who was dedicated to it, they could really really mess you up. the only thing you know about her is that she loves your two novels. Of the works that we've talked about today, which one would you recommend or would you choose something else? <sighs> okay. Hmm. Um, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Okay. So Water, Ghost, and Green Island both have historical elements mm-hmm. and have to do with relationships and love relationships. So I think I would have to go with angle of repose oh 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I thought yeah. uh I thought you might take the film. Oh. Okay. Yeah, include that in your choices. Could... Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um hmm. I think I'm still going to go with Angle of Recovery. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I think that she, I think she would love any of them. I think I'm safe. I think I'm mm-hmm. good and she's not going to harass me for the rest of my life. <laughs> um Right. So you feel strongly that people who read and like your work will also like Stegner. I think so. I mean, yeah. I feel kind of weird putting yeah, myself in the same yeah, sentence yeah. with him. But, nobody, um, nobody wants to do that. But yeah. that's not exactly how I meant it. You know, yeah. I'm looking for yeah. uh, similarities in, in themes and style and, and just kind of approach, I guess. And if people are interested in the historical detail of Green Island, um, Stegner has so much it's so dense with historical detail so that could be something else that appeals right I feel like this question is like real I feel like all this pressure I'm like oh, man, so much writing on this right now I know I had one uh I had one I think it might have been the first surprise bonus question that I asked and wh- and one of the consequences was you would be put to death. And it just seemed to, I had to edit it. I had to change that. It just seemed like, <laughs> like who would want to answer a question like that? Yeah. <laughs> um, pretty scary. Yeah. I think you did a great job. I think you, uh, you handled all of the surprise bonus questions with great skill. And, and I was very interested to talk to you about all of the, about your own writing, but also just such a fascinating life that you've had as a reader. Thank you. Thanks for these questions. They're the most interesting questions <laughs> I have to say I've ever received. <laughs> okay, good. Well, I will take that as a compliment. And thank you yes. very much for joining us today on the History of Literature podcast. Thank you. Wasn't that fun? Shawnee Yang Ryan. Check out her books, Water Ghosts and Green Island. So much dedication to history and getting the story right. And Taiwan is such a fascinating place full of wonderful people and a powerful past. Green Island is available at Audible, a free audiobook if you go to audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Also, James Baldwin's Another Country is there. And Stegner's Angle of Repose and Lois Duncan's Locked in Time. They're all there. And you get to choose one of them for free. Compliments of Audible and the History of Literature podcast. That's audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. H as in history, O as in of, and L as in love. Literature too. But let's go with love. Hey. Speaking of love, why not show us some love? We could use it here in our lonely little studio. It's not all champagne and limousines here at the Jack Wilson studio. A lot of tea and Grandma Jensen's nuts and bolts, actually. That's no way to live. How do you show us some love? Head on over to iTunes. Give us a good rating, write a good review, or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on historyofliterature.com facebook.com slash historyofliterature or jackwilson.com that's j-a-c-k-e wilson.com tell all your friends one last somber note before we end here Natalie Babbitt the author of Tuck Everlasting died earlier this week what a coincidence who knew that I'd be digging that book out of the memory bank just days before she passed away I know the obvious headline here is to say that she didn't live forever but she did live to be 84 and remember this sentence the point of the book really you don't have to live forever you just have to live rest in peace Natalie Babbitt you will be missed and your books will live forever I'm Jack Wilson thanks for listening to the History of Literature podcast and we'll see you next time